stay hungry, stay foolish. One of the reasons we can bring you increased amount of information is because of our fantastic sponsor, Zai. Great people to work with. Zai is boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded finance products and services, empowering businesses to manage multiple payment workflows and move funds with ease. You can check out Zai at hellozai.com. Let's get into today's episode. Today's book has sold well over 1 million copies and spent a whole nine months on the New York Times bestseller list. Our guest is a master negotiator and has successfully negotiated everything from insurance claims to hostage releases to his own son's hair length and hundreds of matters for over five decades. Ever since he coined the term win-win in 1963, he has been teaching people the world over how to get what they want in any situation. As a result of his extensive negotiating experience and his unique presentation style, he is internationally renowned as someone who can quickly grasp both sides of an issue and get the most for his client out of a difficult negotiation. His advice, it's simple, he says, I care, but not that much. In today's book, and in his signature humorous and self-deprecating style, he explains how the reader can powerfully yet subtly negotiate plays to help them in their business, in their career, and even in family relationships. As our guest puts it, negotiation is the game of life itself. It is an honor to host him on the show. He is the author of You Can Negotiate Anything, the game of negotiating and the focus of today's episode. Negotiate this by caring, but not that much. Herb Cohen, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute honor to have you on the show, Herb. And I just want to speak to our listeners here for a moment. For regular listeners to the show, who are corporate change makers or CEOs or those people grappling with change, you know the importance of the art of negotiating. We're negotiating nonstop and oftentimes running into the resistance for change. Herb covers all of this in this magnificent book and indeed in all his books. They are must reads for people in any aspect of life. And Herb, I thought I'll tee you up to bring it anywhere you like here with a quote I took from the very, very start of the book. You say, negotiation is a gaming mechanism. Whenever you attempt to reconcile differences, marriage conflict, resolve disputes, established or adjust relationships, you are playing the negotiating game. Truly, it is the lifeblood of relationships. While people accept the importance of this learned skill in diplomatic dealings and labor relations, they oftentimes fail to see the opportunities that exist for them to gain a better mastery in their everyday lives via negotiating know-how. I thought that would be a way to tee you up to emphasize the importance of negotiating as an aspect of life itself. Yes, uh, well, obviously, as you said quite well and very succinctly, I think that every encounter that we have with an objective in mind where we are attempting to influence behavior is a negotiation. Uh, 
negotiation occurs when we attempt to reconcile differences, resolve disputes, manage conflict. But it's even broader than that. And we're constantly negotiating. We're attempting to influence people. And it's a learned skill. You know, people think negotiators are born. Well, I come from a family that never negotiated anything. My parents came here as youngsters. They were immigrants that came to the United States. They were elated to be here. They were overinsured, but never made a claim. Why? Well, they were afraid the insurance company would raise their rates or cancel them. So in truth, my parents never negotiated anything. They paid the full price. I didn't learn this, you know, at home. Uh, When I needed a job badly, I went from law school from day to night because my wife and I discovered we had no money. We just got married. We were broke. She was going to school. I was going to school. So I got this job as a claims adjuster on the streets of New York, where there were 8 million sagas in the naked city. And I needed to get ahead, which meant I needed to make money. And so I figured, you know, the executives look really good. You know, spiffy guys, they had fancy cars. If I would get promoted, uh, do well, I could be an executive. Uh, this was a little uh, foolish thinking on my part, but nevertheless, when everybody settled two cases a month, I settled 12. When everyone settled five, I settled 15. And eventually they said, what are you doing? Could you teach people to do what you're doing? And so in 1963, as you pointed out, I am teaching a course in negotiation. And that's how it started with me. And I had to learn a lot, gain a lot of experience and became then uh, a negotiator. And people started asking for my services. Early on, I worked for Chase Manhattan Bank. I was involved in the first deal uh, that the Western company had made with the People's Republic of China. I was involved in the Soviet Union with arms control, with developing the hostage negotiating program at Quantico, Virginia, for the FBI. And uh, and I had all sorts of uh, other experience, but I learned this. And that's my point. Uh, You have an audience where people say, well, I'm kind of embarrassed by this. But it's, it's a game. We all learn it. And it's very easy uh, to play this game. As I say, negotiating is the world of illusion, where things are seldom what they seem. Even skim milk masquerades as cream. And so people say, well, this is the asking price on my home. Yeah, but that's the asking price, but there's the wanting price, which may be different. You're asking for this, but of course you'll take less. And that's true with virtually everything. And when I wrote my first book, 
you can negotiate anything. You know, people doubted it. And so they take me around to places like Gucci or Tiffany's. And they would film me proving that I couldn't negotiate at Tiffany's, you know, or Zegna when I would buy a suit. Uh, no, 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 not, not Zegna. It's an exclusive store. Well, I would show them that you can negotiate, you know, everywhere. You see, if, if something comes about as a result of a negotiation, of course, it's negotiable. Now, what does not come about as a result of a negotiation? Ethical, moral, and religious principles. Aside from what Mel Brooks would have you believe, you know, Mel Brooks's bit, his shtick, is uh, Moses comes down from Mount Sinai and uh, he's encountered the Lord. And originally the Lord said, here are the 15 commandments. And Moses said, I was thinking of five, you know, the kind of the tablets are heavy. And so Moses says to the Almighty, let's split the difference. And that's how we ended up with Ten Commandments. Now, of course, that's ridiculous. But, you know, it's Mel Brooks's humor. And, you know, by the same token, Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount did not get his followers together and say, you know, give me your input. You know, we'll form a task force and work out some principles of living. Those things didn't happen. And so things that don't come about as a result of the negotiations, I say are not negotiable, but everything else is. Uh, automobiles are negotiable. But people say to me, but Herb, there's a sticker price on the car, you know, that appears stuck to the car. And so that frightens people. Well, this is the pay grade. You know, having been in human resources and established pay grades, I know how they come about. You know, people say, well, it should be, should it be 800 or 1,000? You say, eh, make it 920. And then it's printed up and people think it's, you know, something to be revered. And so I say to you, virtually everything comes about as a result of a negotiation. If you're talking about a refrigerator, a sofa in a store, the marketing people said, make it $2,000. We'll sell a lot of sofas. The financial guy said, yeah, but we won't make much profit. Make that 2,500. Someone else came in with their input and ultimately the manager said, let's make it 2,200. And 99, it sounds better. And so that's how that was established. It was established as a result of a negotiation. Therefore, it is negotiable. And that's why I say you can negotiate anything. I love it, Herb. I love it. And what a great way to get us started. I thought we'd mention as well, because in the title, Negotiate This, you say you got to care, but not all that much. And that's a really, really important aspect. It's probably the, one of the most as important aspects of that book. And I'd love you to share why that's so important. Yeah, well, if you ask people, who's the worst person you negotiate for? 
and they reflect upon that, they will ultimately say, well, myself, and, and certainly that's true in my case. I do exceptionally well negotiating for others, yet dealing with my children or my spouse, it becomes emotional. And I don't do as well. And the question is why? Because if you're in a situation where you care, really care, you know, this is crucial to me. This affects Western civilization. You put yourself under a lot of stress. As I would say, you cannot see the forest for the tree. You get so close, you don't even see the tree. Only a knot hole right here. You know, you, you don't even think there's a tree. And so if you could care, really care, but not that much, you could do well. You could say to yourself, this is a blip on the radar screen of eternity. This is a walnut in the batter of life. Am I going to remember this in 10 years? Yeah. The answer is probably no. So you go into that situation by caring, but not that much. See, if you care too much, you become doped up and dumbed down. It becomes too emotional for you. And so what you want to do is, you know, get a balance between, you know, logical despair and you know, and uh, really emotional involvement by caring, but not that much. Uh, I'll give you an example of this. Many years ago, I was involved in a negotiation with General Motors, and uh, General Motors had produced all Oldsmobile cars. This maybe even before your time, Aid. But these Oldsmobile cars had this rocket Olds engine. It was like a good engine. It could go from zero to 60 in six seconds, eight seconds. People wanted this car. It was a hot car. It was selling like crazy. General Motors ran out of rocket Olds engines. And so instead of saying we have none, wait till next year and we produce more. They said, people won't know. Let's put a Chevrolet engine in the Oldsmobile cars, which they did, and they sold a couple of million of those cars. But ultimately, the public found out about this. They said, wait a second. I have a Chevrolet engine in an Oldsmobile car. And there was a massive class action suit. And they wanted to settle this suit, and they so they brought me in. And we were in this... Uh, a hotel it was actually the Hyatt House in Chicago, and all the General Motors brass were across the table from us, and their law firm, expensive law firm, and I sat across from them. And uh, they said, okay, give us an offer. You know, what do you want? And I didn't want to give it. I said, no, no, tell us what you're going to pay. So we were at a stalemate, and they didn't like my attitude. I wasn't humble enough. I'm not good at real excessive humility. And they say, look, uh, you're in the business of 
giving speeches and consulting. We're the largest company in the world at that time. By the way, this was around 1970, something, maybe, no, maybe 2000. Um, uh, so uh, one of them executives at GM said, look, uh, you keep up this attitude, Herb. You'll never work for General Motors again. You'll never work for our subsidiaries. You know, kiss your ring, come goodbye. At this point, I stood up, you know, which is unusual because we're all seated. I said, I'm 60 years of age. I, when I reflect on my life, I say, it was a good life. I'm happy with my wife. I have healthy children. I'm grateful every day. I did much better than I thought I would do. And if I die tomorrow, I'd be happy, content. I got had a good life. And never once in that life did I ever work for General Motors. So I don't care. I sat down. As soon as I sat down, I said, okay. $12 million. In other words, I conveyed an attitude of caring, but not that much. If you look at a professional athlete, somebody that's good, watch a hockey game and watch the guys skate on the ice before the game. Their expression, expression is blank. They're not smiling, happy, elated. They're not down and depressed. They care but not that much in sports and baseball. They play 162 games. The team that wins the pennant, the best team, a good team, wins 100 games, which means they lose two-thirds at a time. You know, a great hitter. Uh, if he could hit 333 two times out of three times, he doesn't get a hit. And so, you know, there's a lot of setbacks in life. And so you want to learn how to handle setbacks. In fact, that's what determines how successful you are, not the ability to handle success. See, success teaches you how to do this. I was good, wasn't I? <laughs> but failure, you know, bumps on the road are really kind of learning experience. And that's what you have to do. You have to care, but not that much. And you say to yourself, this is a blip on the eternity of life. Will I remember this in 20 years? If the answer is no, hey, screw it, move on. And when you go into a negotiation with that kind of attitude, the other side senses it, you know, they think, well, this guy doesn't absolutely need us. He could walk out. I'm very happy to be here. I'm here, but hey, I got other options, other alternative. Life goes on. So that attitude really helps you tremendously as a negotiator. And by the way, if you're talking to your audience or people who probably are buyers, they're consumers. You go out and buy a car. You have power. What is your power? You have money. 
Money is a fungible commodity, which means you could do a lot with money. Number one, I could buy this particular automobile, all right? Or in this dealership, or I could buy this car at another dealership, or I could buy a different car. I could get an infinity, you know, rather than this, or I can get a Mercedes, uh, or I don't even need a car. I'll keep it another year and see what happens. Uh, in other words, you've got a lot of options. And so the dealer acts like you need him, you know, like, well, we, we're, we, you know, have a standard price. We don't reduce the price. Uh, you don't know what the demand is like. Hey, this guy's dying. He's working on commission. And so he says to you, well, uh, Mr. Cohen, uh, when you change your mind, you know, uh, here's my card. Never take his card. Hand him your card and say, hey, if things change, give me a call. I guarantee that within the next month, he'll call you. Why? His boss will be coming up to him and say, hey, you haven't sold any cars. You know, you know you're not going to be here that long without selling cars. And so he will call you. He will cut his commission. And my point is, as a buyer, you have tremendous amount of power. You have tremendous amount of options. You know, don't get intimidated by the other side. You know, you are a dollar sign, and they won't let you get out of the store. Believe me. And if they do let you out, they'll call you. So <laughs> my point is people have more power than they think they have. I very often, if I run a seminar, I give people an example. A prisoner is in solitary confinement. And when you're in solitary confinement, they take away your shoelaces and your belt. And so you're walking around holding up your pants with your shoes flopping about. Well, this prisoner decides, I need a smoke. I need a cigarette. He goes to the door. He knocks on the door. And the guard opens up reluctantly. He says, yeah, what do you want? I'd like a cigarette, please. The guard slams that slot. A minute later, the prisoner comes back. Look, I'd like uh, a cigarette. And if I don't get one, in the next 30 seconds, I intend to bang my head up against that concrete wall until I am conscious and bloody. And when they revive me, I intend to swear that you did it. Now, ultimately, they may not believe me, but in the interim, think of all the hearings you'll be attended. Think of all the reports you're filling out. And all I'm asking you for is one little cigarette. Can a guy get that cigarette? Yeah. And so I'm saying to you, Aiden, and your audience, you always have more power than you think you have. Don't underestimate your power. In other words, anyone that's come to you to negotiate and say to you, eh, I don't negotiate. This is the price. 
In other words, you go into a dealership and the guy's sitting with you, wasting his time to tell you that we don't negotiate. If, if that were a particular case, he wouldn't even spend any time with you. You know, and so people have more power than they think they have. They've got more options and everything or virtually everything except the exceptions I made tends to be negotiable. I love it, Herb. It's it's such valuable. And I love the stories that you pepper the book with. You've had many negotiations for cars where your family were involved, buying houses, etc, etc. But I, I'd love to focus on something you said there, which is the the life aspect. And just for our audience, I, I'm going to I'm going to come forward and back between business world and then life itself, because that's what Herb does brilliantly in this book. And one of the things you talk about Herb is what you call there the roller coaster principle. So life has ups and downs, but you're constantly moving forward. And to understand that, you talk about the understanding that you will make mistakes, but you call them faux pas, because you say errors and mistakes are not the same. And there's a reason I say that because when we're innovating, and when we're inventing the future, essentially doing innovation work, we're going to be making loads of faux pas, we're going to faux pas our way forward on the roller coaster of life. I'd love your thoughts on that. Well, see, if we like someone, we tend to label things that mess up as errors. Why? Because the error is human and to forgive divine. All right. If we don't like someone, we're uncomfortable with him, he can make the same kind of faux pas. It's a mistake. That guy keeps making mistakes. Mistakes are the product of gross stupidity, sharing competence, but errors, errors, human and forgive the blind. And so, you know, in the corporate world, we're talking about promoting people. The guy that's been there or gal for 20 years, we remember like six years ago when we had that little thunderstorm and, uh, that guy, that gal came in with the galoshes. Remember that stupid thing? Where, you know, because they've been here 10 years, we remember all these things. But the person who's relatively new is like what I call the shiny penny, where the person's been around as long as the tarnished nickel. It's never even snowed or rained since the two person has been here two years comes in. And so we evaluate that individual differently. But the point is, we're all going to make mistakes in life. We're all going to mess up. And there are a lot of ruts on the road. In fact, one of the tips I try to give my grandchildren uh, is an old Chinese proverb. Uh, and that proverb is, if you want to know what the road ahead looks like, ask somebody that came back. In other words, mentors are good because they have had a lot of experience and they could help you minimize your errors and mistakes. Unfortunately, this generation, including some of my grandchildren, 
don't believe in that Chinese proverb. They believe if you want to know what the head, road ahead looks like, go there. Well, go there is there's a lot of ruts in the road. And so it is, as I learned in the army, there's the long way and the short way. And everyone's going to make a lot of errors and goof off. And well, but if you can minimize those errors, you can have a less aggravation. But see, one of the things that I believe in in negotiation is which consists of two things how you negotiate and what you're talking about. How is uh, your demeanor? your manner, your way, and what is the content of the transaction, how profitable it'll be, the terms, all right? And so the how, how you approach people should always be in an amicable fashion with what I call a low-key pose of calculated incompetence. All right. Uh, that's your how. In other words, one of the things I try to do is make the other side feel superior to me. In some cases, it's very difficult to do, but I really try. Okay. And see, I'm tougher on the what. Also, if I make a concession to the other side, I always get something in return, all right? I just don't make a concession. See, because if you make a concession to the other side, it's the one be a nice guy. They very often see giving them something for nothing is a sign of weakness. And instead of making them happy and amenable to making this deal, they think this guy's stupid. I can victimize him. And so you always get something in return, particularly when you deal in adversarial uh, negotiations. Like right now, we deal with the uh, Russians uh, and they're in the Ukraine. Uh, and like at the beginning, Biden, uh, President Biden, who overall handle that situation well in gathering uh, all the allies together, uh, made a mistake at the beginning where he told Putin, uh, well, if you just take a little bit of Ukraine, you know, the area where there's upheaval, we won't do much. No, no, you don't say that in an adversarial negotiation. That, that was really a, a goof on his part. But, you know, all of life is a negotiation, not just uh, diplomacy, but a marital situation, raising kids on negotiations. And where we're more personally involved, that's where, you know, things uh, uh, tend to be more difficult. Yeah. By the way, uh, since I mentioned children, uh, if you were to ask people who are the best negotiators in our society, um, you know, and that you deal with it and they think about it and are honest, they'd say, 
Well, the best negotiators are children. And what do children do? Number one, they aim high. They have very high expectations as to what they can accomplish. When they want a birthday gift, they make an excessive request to their parents. They aim high. And if you expect more in life, you get more, okay? Werner von Braun, the German rocket scientist who later went on to work for NASA, wrote an autobiography called Aim for the Stars. The man never hit the stars once. He hit London a lot. So aiming high, setting your objectives high, tends to pull up your performance. The second thing the kids understand is no, no, is an opening bargaining position. See, if you surprise a parent or anyone with something they didn't expect, they're going to say no. Uh, and people who are savvy understand that if I tell you no and later tell you yes, you like me. <laughs> Remember I told you no, but it's yes, I like you. However, if you start out saying yes and then you say no, they don't like you. They, they say you reneged on that deal. You didn't keep your word. And so kids understand that no is an opening bargaining position. And so when they make a request to their mom and she says no, they go to the father or vice versa. And he says no. They, they seem to be united. The kid doesn't stop there. He goes over their head to grandparents with whom he forms coalitions. Okay? and they have something in common with the kid. They have a common enemy, the parents. And the fourth thing that kids do is they're persistent. They're tenacious. They don't give up. They have more energy than we have. I, myself, I'm the parents of three children, my wife and I, and the oldest child, our daughter, we had uh, standards and rules, and we've sort of made her live up to those standards and rules. Second kid, we had the same standards and rules, but we had some exceptions. We were more flexible. Third kid, we were tired people. I remember saying to the third kid, why don't you ask your brother and sister Tell used to how it used to be around here. So my point is that kids do these things that make them such good negotiators. If we as adults did this in our everyday dealings, we would become more effective. And so we can really learn a hell of a lot from kids. You remind me, Herb, of uh, I don't know if it's an Irish saying, but. We say over here, so if the fir first kid, it's about the, the way you get worn down as a parent. If the first kid swallows a penny, you bring them to the hospital. If the second kid swallows a penny, you check their diaper. And if the third kid swallows a penny, you deduct it from their pocket money <laughs> because you just get <laughs> worn down in time. It's the same attitude. You know, I negotiate everywhere all over the world. And uh, you say, well, it's different. No, no, see, 
one of the things you try to do as a negotiator is you try to be other directed. You recognize that people aren't the same as you. And what looks like crazy behavior or stupid or rigid behavior makes sense to them. All behavior makes sense from the standpoint of the actor and you're dealing with a different culture. And so if I would go to Ireland, I would learn a lot about Ireland, the people, the history, the customs, the culture, maybe even ask somebody who just came back, what is his experience? And then when I would go there and in any negotiation, I ask more questions than I give answers, okay? Second thing I do is I listen more than I talk. And when I listen, I don't listen like this. Yeah, I am hearing you. No, no. I look at the person, okay? I look him straight in the eye. When he or she says something I like, I smile and I nod my head. Hey, that was that was good. That's creative. When they say something I don't like, which is quite often, I don't react. All right. Number three, I try to pick up on the cues, the little subtle things that saying to me. And then, strange as it may seem, I take notes. I write down what people say now. Occasionally, individuals say to me, look, I deal with crazy people. You're telling me when they talk, I write down what they say, a crazy person, the same crazy things, to which I would say, you are the first person that ever wrote down anything they ever said. You know, most people say, I'm not writing this down. No, no, you write it down. In fact, I often, if I want to close the deal, I refer to what they said. I said, if I'm not mistaken, I think you may have said, I, I am not mistaken. I know what they said. I wrote it down. You said this. It would seem to me that a logical follow-up to this would be. And so, hey, that's how you get people to change their behavior. See, that's how you get them to go from no, they don't go from no to yes. They go from no to, I don't know, to, well, I'm not sure. Well, let me think about it. Well, maybe, maybe, oh, well, I'll try half of that. Oh, let's see how it goes. And ultimately, yes, which means you've got to, have patience, you gotta be persistent. And that's how you you make deals. That's how you change behavior. I love that, Herb, because that that is exactly why your books are so relevant for innovation. Because innovation in large corporations is behavior change. And I wanted to pull a quote that just brings all those things you said together here. There's a killer segment that I'd love you to expand upon. You said if you want to impact favorably on the other side's decision making, you've got to be other directed, understanding their values, their beliefs, their experience and their mindset. Business people call this being customer or client focused. 
Beyond a doubt, all human beings perceive, discover and create their realities according to the maps or paradigms they have in their own minds. Hence, it is a natural thing to ascribe our beliefs, our values, our concerns and aspirations to those with whom we negotiate. But, you say, we must guard against this inclination. Such mirror imaging or projection on our part will only produce discomfort and discord. Recognising this problem, common sense might tell us that when engaged in any attempt to influence behaviour, we must start out asking more questions than giving answers and listening more than talking. And I thought that was such a key point for our audience, Herb, who are often engaged in selling change or selling new ideas within the organisation, because we need to determine first the other person's frame of reference to understand the world as they see it, and then to start to speak in their own language. And this just broadens exactly what you were telling us. Yeah, well, that's absolutely true. And even though I kind of wrote it, you know, it's... Sounds good, doesn't it? <laughs> it's accurate. You know, I started my career, um, I represented Chase Manhattan. They wanted to make the first deal with the Chinese. And uh, this was like uh, in 1974. And uh, the Japanese were there before them. The Germans were there. And it was a third country, I think the Swiss. And Chase executives went over there and they came back. There's no chance for us. And I met with them. We reorganized and went over there and practiced some of the things I'm telling you about. And suddenly we made the deal. and see, and the key is, as you said, see, understand the other side is a different person. Uh, and one of my favorite statements is, we don't see things as they are. Each of us see things as we are. We're captives of our own experience and our own culture. And so there's a tendency to think, well, this is it, those are the facts, and he, she sees it the way I see it. Well, they don't see it that way. They come from a different place. They have different experiences. And that's why when you're asking them questions, you're doing a little search, you're researching, you're thinking about this, you learn a lot of stuff. And it's a big mistake to project your values, your attitudes on the other side. It's what we call mirror imaging, you know, well, if I were them, this is what I do. No, you're not them. You know, in fact, one of the things uh, that I said years ago was that all behavior makes sense from the standpoint of the actor. You know, I said this uh, dealing with Saddam Hussein. You know, Saddam Hussein, who we say, well, the guy's crazy. No. He thinks what he's doing makes sense to him based upon his experience. And so if you want to like deal with him and change his behavior, that's how you have to start out. Start out trying to find as much as you can about the other side. And if you do that, you'll be much more uh, successful. 
See, as I indicated earlier, all negotiations you start out in an amicable fashion with this low-key style of calculated incompetence. You try to make the other side feel superior to you. In many cases, you have to work hard, but it's a good idea. And then if you mess up on the how, what you do is you, you exaggerate your mess up. Like, for example, if I'm supposed to be at a meeting at noon and I'm stuck in traffic, I get there at 1215, all right? I walk in and I say to the people, I really want to apologize. I kept you waiting. I am so sorry. It's my fault. I should have left earlier. You know, I made a terrible mistake. I'm a half hour late. Now, how do people react to that? They look at their watch and say, no, you're only 15 minutes, okay? Yeah, there must have been a lot of traffic. In other words, I have made a concession. I have exaggerated what I have done. How? And people kind of respond favorably to that. Uh, now, so I'm saying when it comes to how, I try to make concessions. I'm very amicable, very congenial. When it comes to what, um, you know, concerned about that, the, the, that's the price, the profitability, the terms, the deal itself. And when it comes to what, if I make a concession, I want one in return. In fact, if, you, if the other side sees that they don't have to work for concessions, they don't appreciate. People appreciate those things they work for. You know, otherwise, eh, so what? So you got to like make them work for concessions. In other words, if I have uh, $2,000, ultimately I want to pay the guy. The first offer could be $1,500. The next offer could be $1,800. The next $1,860. The next 1902, the next 1904. See, you notice the concessions drop. So what I'm doing is I'm signaling the other side. We're nearing the end. Or as Judy Holliday used to say, the party's over. And they, they get that message. Uh, so, you know, these are some of the ways... You know, you deal with people, and those people could be people in other cultures. Those people could be uh, individuals that you manage. See, I would contend that leadership, in, especially in today's world, is a negotiation. Because leadership is how do you get people to do voluntarily those things that must be done? And say, the guy, well, he said, he's the CEO. It just tells them and they do it. You're thinking the way it was 30 years ago. Because people today, employees today, number one, they think they have power. Okay? 
And if you think you got it, even if you don't have it, you got it. The second thing is they think they got options that are other jobs. Now, there may not be others, but they think. They, and so uh, this is the workforce you're dealing with. Therefore, what a CEO has to do if he's going to be successful is he's got to get people involved. Why? Because people support that which they help create. If they've been involved in the decision, they want it to succeed. If on the other hand, you tell them what you're going to do, it's your decision. So it fails, you made, you made a mistake. <laughs> Beautiful. Herb, that, that point you made there is so brilliant because oftentimes, firstly, when, when people are dealing with negotiating change, so if I'm a change maker within an organization, and I'm trying to bring a new innovation to life or change a business model, I often approach those meetings in a confrontational way. And you say, well, firstly, I got to change that mindset and become cooperative. Because if I appear cooperative, they're going to enter into what you call the norm of reciprocity. So that's a really, really important point. But then you go a step further. And I'm going to quote a lovely segment here, you say, while all these mind games are being played out, time is passing, like you said about the negotiating. And the other party is investing in this relationship. And once they invest, it's hard for them to divest. Indeed, rats and human beings have this in common, the more energy expended in the pursuit of a, pers a particular goal, the more desirable that goal becomes. That is two key points, the reciprocity norm, and then the investment imperative, they are so important in these negotiations. Yes, that's absolutely true. See, one of the things I said to you is I start amicably, you know, and I appear to be very nice, very friendly. And some people that you're dealing with see this as weakness. I could take this guy. Remember I said earlier, I'm trying to make the other side feel superior to me. So what they do is they invest in the relationship. Hey, this guy we could take. This guy is stupid. This guy's dumb. And as you pointed out, the more they invest, the harder it is for them to divest. I'll give you an example. I am not a big gambler, but when I work in Vegas or I go to Las Vegas, I like to watch people play the slot machine. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, Herbert. <laughs> yeah. If you believe that, good luck to you. It reminds me of William Bennett. I don't know if you know, he was a cabinet officer in um, the Reagan administration. I think he was Secretary of Education. And he incurred gambling debts. And for some reason, they didn't like him. And they revealed he had gambling debts. So, you know, what happens in Vegas stays there, bull. You know, not a good slogan. But in any event, so I go to the area where the guy's playing the slot machines. And I'm watching him. He keeps putting in dollars. He keeps losing. You know, I watch him 30 times put in a dollar. Nothing comes back. So I say to him, excuse me, sir, did you ever think of trying another slot machine? And he says, are you kidding? This one is due 
okay? This one's doing skinny. I said, can I play it? No, no, this is my machine. He's invested in a machine. And once you invest, it's hard for them to divest. So that's what you want to do in a negotiation. You want people to spend time and whatever the reason for spending time. They're spending time because they think this guy's weak. I could conquer this guy. Eventually, they have so much investment. It's really uh, difficult to walk away. You know, you see that even in marriages. You know, people are unhappy, but gee, I spent 26 years with him or her. It's hard for me to walk away. In fact, you know, this is a saying, the devil known is better than the devil known. As bad as my husband is, you know, who knows? At least I can, I know what to expect with predictability. He's a jerk. Go to someone else, he could be worse. You give a great example, Herb, of that, where it was used on you by a salesman, a car salesman. And he's like, oh, I have to go back and talk to the boss. He lives down there with two dogs. I'd love you to share that brilliant story. It's a great story. You know, this is the typical thing when you buy a car. Usually uh, you speak to the salesman and he doesn't have final authority. He's always, well... I understand, Mr. Cohen, we're so close, but uh, uh, let me check with the sales manager or the head of the dealership. And the dealership is on the second floor of the corner office, or sometimes they're in a shack next to the, you know, why is he in a shack? The dealership is three city blocks. Well, he lives there with his dogs. And he you know, you can't believe he goes to see the guy in his shack. Uh, okay, and you got a lot invested. And uh, you wait for him, he's getting impatient, and he comes back, ultimately. And he looks beat up. You know, his, his saliva or water on his jacket, his tie is open, and he's out of breath. I spoke to the guy in the back, or the manager. And he said the best he can do is $33. Now, at this point, you could say, let me go over across the street to sell in the same cars. But you have spent two hours in this dealership. And you, you're hesitant to go across the street because who knows who that guy's living with in the back. Better the devil you know. Yeah, you, you make the deal. You know, and this is what they do when they've tried this out, you know, time and time again. Yeah, See, I'm, one of the things that people should remember in negotiation, that all negotiations, quick is risky. Uh, and it's risky for the side that's less prepared. So if you go in to buy a car, who's better prepared, you or the car deal? By the way, you should get it. Today, you have the benefit of the internet. You can get a lot more information. Speak to people who have bought cars. Uh, but still, the dealer, the salesperson in that dealership is better prepared than you. And so they pass something in front of you to sign. Okay? You always want to delay that, you know, because quick is risky for the side that's less prepared. And so... 
you always say, well, sounds good to me. I appreciate what you've done, but let me check this out. Who would who? Well, I got to check this out with my banker, with my uh, lawyer, with my wife. Even if you're not married, you check, always check with your wife. Okay. And then see I'm impatient, usually. Uh, uh, I might, if I'm with someone, I go outside to talk to them about whether we want to take the deal or not. Or if I'm alone and impatient, I need time to think this over. So I usually have a pen in my pocket. And they make this great offer to me. And I you know, shake my head and I take this pen out of my pocket. And I look at the pen. And I roll the pen and I pull off the top of the pen and I blow on a tip, thereby aerating it somewhat. I then put the pen top on. I try to do it. I have difficulty. Okay. And then I put the pen back in the pocket. And I turn to the other side and I say, where were we? In other words, <laughs> I use time. I use time. It's a little uh, gimmick uh, that I have. You know, slow things down, ask more questions, and, you know, and, and things tend to work out for you. By the way, I, I started to tell you about value and got distracted. Uh, the value of anything is what people are willing to pay for it. And I said, people have a lot of reasons. Um, and if you ask an accountant, they say, well, you look at the sales of the company, uh, you look at its profitability, you look at its people, uh, you know, they have like a lot of criteria. But the value, the real value is what people are willing to pay. And so I once had a situation where this chief executive officer of a company in New York was thinking of expanding his company. His daughter moved to San Francisco. Uh, he was thinking of officing buying a company in Cupertino, which is, you know, in Silicon Valley. And ultimately, he did buy that. And the major factor in him is buying that was his daughter was having a child. This would be his first grandchild. He wanted to be able to go from New York to San Francisco and take that off, you know, visit the business take that off as a business expense. And so he was willing to pay more for this company in Cupertino. You say, well, that had very little to do with the value of the company. Yeah, but the guy is complex. Like all of us, he has a lot of needs. And so that's the way you want to think of value. By the way, would a company ever sell something at a loss? You know, well, if their option was, you know, they had this particular product and couldn't return it for a while, it's sitting on the shelf for 
two years. You know, it's taken up room. The option now is, you know, selling at a loss or really losing more money. It's taken up space. They might do that. And so that's value, you know, which fluctuates all over the place. That's why they can have a sale. 50% off, 75% off. The markup on this stuff is enormous. And that's why if you bought something in uh, downtown Dublin or, or New York City or Chicago, they have, the, the seller's got to pay rent. The rentals are heavy. Whereas if you went to some remote area selling the same thing, they could sell it to you for less. So, you know, you know, sellers attempt uh, to get you to believe that this is the price they put up signs and people in our culture, which is illiterate culture, they are terribly impressed with signs. Uh, I've been in negotiations with people. You tell them something is the absolute truth. That question, I don't know if that's right. And so. There's a lunchtime break, and what you do is you type it out, and you print it up, and you show them the same thing. In pro- oh, excuse me, absolutely, in print. See, that's the power of legitimacy. Many years ago, there was a TV show, Alan Funt, and it was called Candid Camera, and he used to do all these tricks with people. And one day, he decided in the States to put up a large sign that said Delaware closed. And he put two cars in front of the sign like they had stopped. And people came along and, you know, they honked their horns and no one was anywhere. They didn't pull around. They got out of their car and they say, what's the story here? And the people said, Delaware's closed. And then the cars lined up for about a a mile and a half, you know, and there's things like, when will it be open? You know, but family, my kid is expecting me for his birthday party. In other words, it was a big sign. It's like checking out at a hotel, you know, uh, you you read off your door, checkout time is noon. And so quarter to noon, everyone's standing there checking out. Well, that's an arbitrary sign. That's what they want you to do. And by the way, they're really talking about big groups. But if you're one guy, you say, hey, I need a late checkout. Well, how late? 2 p.m., no problem. I've had late checkouts for 7 p.m. without paying anything additional. And the key to do is you speak to the manager. You know, see, the, the person very often who you're dealing with doesn't have authority. They're nervous. They're new on the job. But as I say, why waste your time with the monkey when you could speak to the organ grinder? You go over the head of this person, the next person up who has more authority. And so you got to remember, this is a game. You know, you, you should have fun. You want to care but not that much. One of the things, Herb, I learned from you from your previous books, so uh, you can negotiate anything, was understanding the importance of deadlines 
And where I used this was, if I wanted to buy anything, I mean anything, I used to aim to buy it towards the end of the month where the salesperson would have perhaps a quota to reach in order to get their bonus. And sometimes you get it wrong. Sometimes they wouldn't care that much because they had got their bonus already. And they're like trying to push you into the next month. But then you knew because you know, it's a game. But it's really important with all negotiation, including, for example, in innovation again. So if I'm working in change and innovation, understanding if there was a, a board meeting, and it's somebody in the board said, Oh, we need change, we need more initiate, we need more innovation in the company. That's powerful information that lets me know they need this quickly. So if I use all your techniques, and I question and I try and get inside the frame of reference of the other person, and I uncover actually, there's a deadline, that's huge power in my favor. Yes. Now remember, see, negotiating is a process. Okay. And what people mistake as negotiating is the initial bargaining, where I meet you, a buyer and seller meet sometimes across the table, and they try to work things out, or you see a salesperson and you're interacting with them. That's bargaining. Before that, process one is what I call the foreplay. Okay, you should pardon the expression. The foreplay is you anticipate the bargaining. And what you do is you try to get as much information as you can. By the same token, you try to give information to the other side because you want to lower their expectations. All right. Uh, And then you get into the bargaining session. Okay. They make a demand, they want this, you offer this, uh, there's this interaction, and then you're very far apart. And what happens is suddenly the deadline appears. And listen to that word, deadline. That's a scary word. I'm approaching the deadline. And one of the things we know is that concessions and agreements occur in proximity to a deadline, no matter how far apart you are. When people approach the deadlines, they they look into the abyss and the abyss scares them. It it looks up at them. And so concessions everywhere occur in proximity to the deadline. Because people don't want to go over the deadline. They don't know what the hell's going to happen. In fact, I ask you a question. In any Western culture, when do people file their income taxes? Right at the end. See, logically, you'd say, well, if people have money coming back from the government, they would file immediately. Whereas if you owe money, you'd wait to the end. Except that's not true. If you look at the revenue people in any country, England, Ireland, the United States, Canada, Germany, you will find that like 90% of the people file in the last couple days, just before the deadline. It doesn't matter whether they're getting money back or whether they owe money. And so Deadlines have an enormous impact on us. Now, if virtually everything is the product of a negotiation, 
deadlines are the product of negotiation. Somebody established that. All right, this is all right. So how you behave at the deadline is very important. Uh, I generally am relaxed because I know there's a give in a deadline. Uh, and so the other side, we pass the deadline. The other side very often is lawyers, accountants, they're closing their books, they're walking away, they're putting their stuff in a briefcase. Sorry, Cohen, it didn't work out. I said, I'm sorry. Just before they leave, I turn to them and say, now that it's over, see, we're past the deadline. Where did I go wrong? What could I have done? What should I have done? Help me. And it's over. They say, well, remember when you said this? That was, we couldn't do that, but we could have done this. And so you can resurrect a deal that already went down. So that's why I believe that breakdowns are potential breakthroughs. Uh, that every exit is an un entrance someplace else. That pathology can be opportunity. And so that's kind of like my attitude of, about deadlines. I recognize negotiating is a process. It goes on and on. You know, it's not, you know, where people think, well, it's just this bargaining period as a deadline and it's over. No, no. In other words, if you're selling a house and I make a, a chintzy offer, and you say, get out, you know. And you say, well, it's over. I'll never talk to you again. Well, it's not over till the guy signs a contract for the next house. As long as the house is still on the market, you go and you apologize. You make a better offer. It's still, you're still in the game. You know, in other words, do not despair. Uh, be more persistent and things work out for you. And remember the roller coaster principle as well. But I, I wanted to talk about one last thing, Herb, and this is such an important one for the audience of this show, because there was a line that I pulled from the book that really speaks to the type of person who listens to our show. You said, those who violate the norms, the customs or traditions of society often risk disapproval and even ostracism. Fundamentally, we have an innate hesitancy about new ideas which threaten comfortable habits and ways of thinking. Accordingly, if you intend to introduce a new notion of change on an accepted practice, do it gradually, do it in small increments and support these changes with some form of legitimacy like a precedent. Otherwise, you risk frightening the herd and ultimately starting a stampede where you'll get trampled. I'd love you to expand on this, Herb, because I thought this was such a key point, particularly for our, our audience of this show. Yeah, see, people are at a certain point and they want to get to this point. And individuals resent and don't accept big changes. So what you want to do is, let's say you're at stress level or level six and you want to get to 20 because 20 represents something that's equitable, something that's fair. See, I would go from six to nine 
next year, 9 to 12, then 15. But I'm always on the move because people accept, you know, change in increments. Uh, you know, it's just like, uh, you know, stress. Uh, when people are under stress, um, they're operating in stress level three. You can get them to go to five and they could absorb that. But if they go from three to 23, uh, it's too much change. You know, the human mind is like a reciprocating engine, you know, of an automobile. What happens when you give a little gas at a time? The engine kicks over the cargoes. What if you flood the tank? It spurts, it sputters, it conks out. And so that's the way you are with people. In fact, in successful negotiations, like uh, in the automobile industry, they wanted to introduce uh, medical care to their employees. Well, in one contract, they said, this is what we intend to do. This would be our objective, but they didn't do it. The next contract, they did it at a small level. And then after that, they was bigger. And now it's very generous in the automobile industry. But it happened over a period of time. And that's, you know, the way you make things work. See, the main thing, all of this is recognize it should be fun uh, negotiating. Uh, don't take yourself that seriously. In fact, in negotiation, Dumb is better than smart. Inarticulate is better than articulate. Train yourself to say, I, I, I don't know. I don't understand. Help me. And believe me, the other side responds favorably to that. If you think of your own experience, if you're dealing with someone who's disabled, someone that stutters, what do you do? Ah, forget about it. Bring in someone else that does this. No, no, you say, you say, what's the problem? He goes, it's the, the price. He goes, yeah. What else? He goes, the, the, the quality. We help them. And so if you get humble people, people that are nice, people that are generous, people admit, hey, I screwed up. Uh, and by the way, we all make errors, we make mistakes. And the way to deal with that is to admit it and even exaggerate it. I really screwed up, I'm sorry. And the other side waits for you to say, however. However means strike that. However means uh, what I just said doesn't count. You know, I really screwed up, however you provoke me. The message people get is, you provoke me. It's an angry message. So you say, I really screwed up. I'm sorry. And watch people. They're listening for the however. The however never comes. And so they actually like you. They trust you. This is the game of life. Whenever you attempt to reconcile differences, resolve disputes, Manage conflict. This is with everyone, every single day you play in this game. Have fun with the game. Recognize this is not the end of Western civilization. You know, be persistent, 
enjoy yourself and good things will happen what a wonderful way to finish today's episode herb it was an absolute pleasure talking to you and i'd love to have you back on again author of you can negotiate anything the game of negotiating and the focus of today's episode which was negotiate this by caring but not that much they're all still available on amazon i highly recommend them they are more relevant than ever before and herb it was an absolute honor having you on the show i'm so grateful for your time well, thank you, Aiden, and thank you for your hospitality. The Innovation Show is brought to you proudly by Zai. Zai is boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded finance products and services empowering businesses to manage multiple payment workflows and move money with ease. You can check out Zai at hellozai.com.